Before we begin, I have a couple of things to tell you. First, I have written a cookbook that has just gone on sale. It's called Country Music's Greatest Eats. It's a collaboration with Southern Living Magazine and Country Music Television, CMT. And in it, I profile 30 country music stars and their favorite family recipes. I talk to legends like the Oak Ridge Boys and Winona Judd, as well as newer acts like the Zac Brown Band and Florida Georgia Line. Check it out. It's on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Speaking of Southern Living, I'm happy to announce that Authentic South is featured in the June 2014 issue of the magazine. They've got a huge story in there called The A to Z Guide to Southern Food, and they wrote about us in the I category. That's I for indie food media. Be sure and show Southern Living some love and join the conversation at hashtag Southern Food Now. All right, on to the show. Hunter Lewis is the executive editor at Southern Living Magazine. Before that, he had stints at the publications Bon Appetit and Savour. He grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, was a journalism major at UNC, and worked in several restaurants along the way. When he was first starting his career, Hunter landed a job as a beat reporter for the Herald Sun newspaper in Durham. But after a few years, he began trying to reconcile his two loves of writing and food. And so a buddy of mine who was a reporter said, you know what, you should go to culinary school. And then you should write about food. It's a good idea. So I looked into that and then realized that, uh, you know, the cooking to me was a lot like being an athlete. And I was a jock in high school and college. And being in restaurant kitchens kind of tapped into that adrenaline and that camaraderie and being on a team. And so I quit my job at the paper uh, in 04 and moved up to New York City. And I got a job at a restaurant called Barbuda with a chef named Jonathan Waxman. And I didn't know who the guy was. And uh, it was very serendipitous and I learned a lot. And it was, that was my, my real, that was my culinary school. That was my proving ground. And they broke me down and uh, I thought I was gonna get fired every day for six months. You know. Why? I mean, what, what was happening? Were you? Just I mean, I was I was the house? low man on the totem yeah. pole. I was the kitchen bitch, right. and right. Uh, I was told it every day. And I was, you know, I worked for free for a month just to to get on board. And then I became the lunch cook, and you know, I was making ten bucks an hour in New York City in two thousand five. <laughs> and you know, we were working. You, you just paid your dues. It's it's the kind yeah. of thing as a as a cook aspiring to be a chef. You're paid a certain wage but you know you're gonna stay 12 15 hours and you're gonna bleach the walk-in uh, during service and you're gonna scrape the the grill and do everything you're gonna do as, as a low man but anyway it was it was a great great training ground for me uh, it made me stronger it made me a much better cook and I just snapped one day I mean I I was gonna give up and uh, my chef had been yelling at me and he'd been on my case all week and I went out by the Hudson River and uh, I just kind of looked out, now this is in the West Village, and I said, are you, are you gonna do this? You know, are you gonna keep cooking or are you just gonna quit? You know, and you moved back to North Carolina and I went back in and, um, and I kept cooking, but something changed. It wasn't instant, but something changed over time when I, I really started to get it and I got Waxman's philosophy and I realized his, his whole California and Italian and French aesthetic was, and philosophy was not much different than the South I knew uh, and the way that Southerners cook. 
And um, once I, I really understood where he was coming from and what his point of view was, and once I relaxed at the stove, I became a much better cook. Uh, and then I fell in love with it. And um, then there was this, you know, I cooked for a few years, but I've always had this, this, uh, this question, you know, do I cook or do I write? Um, and I think I'm still asking myself that question. Am I a cook or am I a writer? And I'll tell you, cooking's a hell of a lot more fun than writing. <laughs> a lot more fun. Is it really? I mean, so... Yeah, it's instantaneous. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. there's instant gratification. And, you know, the deadline is immediate. Uh, it's not a month out. And um, I love being an editor and I love being a writer. Um, and I love the people that, that I come across and the, the job every day. Um, but cooking is, is so instinctual. And, um, you know, you can, as a cook, I think you, cooks are pleasers. You want, you want to make people happy and, and you can tell if they're happy immediately once you serve them the food. The other thing too is I think cooking is, is you know, when you're, when you're really doing it and when you're in the moment, you don't have to think. You know, you're just doing it. Yeah, it's a much slower process and the gratification has not come as immediately, and it's with, with writing. Yeah. You know, you, know you, you build this thing, and you build this thing, and, and you go and you report, and then you start shaping it, and you come to understand this thing you're writing about, and then you chip away, and then you chip away, and you keep building, and, and then you chip. And sometimes you, you, you've done great, and uh, oftentimes you've, you've just done good, you know, and, and that's okay, but yeah, I think cooking is more fun. How do you scratch that itch? Well, I would love to be in the test kitchen every day cooking with uh, the crew. We've got a really, really talented crew in the, in the Southern Living Kitchen. But really, it's about cooking at home. And the weeknights are hard. I mean, any weeknight cook will tell you when you're putting food on the table with family that, you know, sometimes it's like triage. But the weekends are where it's fun. You know, you can plan and, and you can be more leisurely. And you know, for me, it's about being outside at the grill and, you know, cooking from the farmer's market. Take my two and a half year old Francis to Pepper Place Farmers Market in Birmingham, and we'll go and see what's there. And it's good. I mean, it's good for me because I get to to get fresh ingredients, and it's good for her because she's learning. And she likes to be there and watch people, and you know, see how it all goes down. And you can see that developing. Yeah, yeah. And I can see it too with, um, you know, we don't have a, a garden per se, but we do have a blueberry bush and a blackberry bush and herbs and you know, a few other things in containers. And, um, you know, she, she loves it. You know, she'll pick the, black, the blackberries and blueberries and she just wants to go up and smell it and, and, and taste it. And, you know, now she knows the, the words of what these things are. And she'll pinch the uh, tarragon and put it up to her nose and, you know, take a big sniff. Very dramatic to show off for her dad, but it's cool. Well, it sounds like um, she may get the drama from her dad if, if you're someone who walks out to the Hudson River to talk to yourself and have a very epic conversation yeah. with yourself. Yeah. That, that's a fairly cinematic, dramatic kind of Yeah, at the time uh, it didn't feel that way. At the time it, it just <laughs> felt like a, uh, a huge heavy weight, but I, I was just not a very good cook. You know, and, and Waxman, Waxman told me it one time on the line, we were super busy and it was a night we had like 350 covers and I was fumbling the garnish on something and he just looked at me and he goes, dude, he always said everything started with dude. I have said a couple dudes, but he said, dude, he said, you're such a glorified home cook. 
Uh, and he was right, and I knew it. And I think about that a lot now because that's what I am, and, and that's who my audience is. It's, it's home cooks, and, uh, and I've really embraced that. Yeah, I'm a glorified home cook. But he never fired you. No, right? No, no, he never fired me. I mean, there was there had to be something to that. I mean, it, it could have been partially that. Well, I don't know. Somebody could have come, could have stepped right in after after he got rid of you. So there was something. He, I don't know. He he wanted to keep you around for a reason. Yeah, and we had a good rapport. And um, my mentor there, a guy named Justin Smiley, who's now one of my best friends and who's a really really talented chef. And I mean, I called him my tour mentor. He was the guy that really rode me. And, and taught me um, you know I think I followed some advice that a, a buddy of mine Ed Brantley gave me um, Ed's from East North Carolina where, near where my wife's from he was a chef in, uh, in the Triangle and uh, now based in Chapel Hill and I called him up in New York and I said I'm going to this job you know what should I do and he said buddy you got to do three things he said first keep your f-ing mouth shut second don't call in sick. And third, keep your head down. And uh, I just kind of laughed. I said, okay, yeah, but he's, he was so right. And, you know, you just that first year, you just got to keep your mouth shut. You got to be curious. You got to show up on time. You got to stay late. And um, you just go from there. You know, and it's not about instant gratification. You got you to gotta pay your dues and you got to keep working and keep working. And, you know, I think I, I talked to a lot of kids now who are trying to, decide like I did. Do, do I go to culinary school? I don't, I don't know if I want to go into restaurants. What am I going to do with this career? Uh, do you have any advice? And uh, I give them the same advice that an intern told me. It's like, just work hard. It sounds easy, but you know, in this, in this age where you want everything, you want it now, and you want a, a career in TV, it's no, you've got to have a foundation. You might hit it big, but you, if you don't have that foundation, you're going to peter out and, and fizz out in a year. In, in talking about the difference between cooking and writing, there is a lot of build up when you're when you're putting together a story. There's a lot, a lot more planning that goes into it. There's a lot more of a just just more um, methodology, perhaps. I want to talk about this big story that you guys have out right now, the A to Z Guide to Southern Food, which. I have to say thank you for including Authentic South in it Absolutely, as, part of Tanner. The, as part of it. But, but I, I do want you to talk a little bit about planning a massive story like that. that is a, that's one of the biggest stories I've seen in the magazine in a long time that is that cohesive. Tell me about where that begins. Well, it begins with the idea that you know, we want to do a food issue and it's going to be in June and um, got to fill some pages. So what are we going to do? You know, I, I think we've gotten to the point, and with Southern Living, you know, we're known for our recipes, and we're known for our trusted recipes that come out of this great test kitchen, the South's most trusted kitchen. But we need to do a better job of storytelling. Uh, Southern Living was rooted in that. You know, if you look at the issues from the late 60s and the 70s and 80s and, um, and 90s, there, there's a, a ton of good stories. And I mean, Tanner, you're a storyteller yourself. You know, it's what you do. But with with the recipes, uh, we needed more context. We needed, we needed the sidebars and the, the essays, and we needed to build around that. So with this package, we just started thinking about, all right, what are the places and who are the people and what are the, the recipes that we're really excited about right now that speak to the South? 
you know, Southern cooking is all about the past and it's all about looking ahead. You have to look backwards and you have to look forwards. You have to think about your traditions and rituals and your roots and where we've come from. And uh, with this package, we wanted to think about where Southern food is going. And uh, as long as we had that balance, you know, it's always messy. It's never perfect, but as long as we had that balance of, of old stories and um, old touchstones and then new things, the things that were exciting us now, then um, we thought it could be good. And so, you know, it's, it's everything from uh, a tribute to, to John Edgerton, who just died last year, and a marinade recipe to Jones Valley Teaching Farm, which is my favorite place in Birmingham. You know, and it's, it's very much of the now uh, of taking this urban farm model and, and really giving it a 2.0 approach of taking it into the classrooms to teach these kids about vegetables and, and how to eat healthier. You know, and it's about community. And uh, we've brought some of these kids and their families into the Southern Living Kitchen to cook. And uh, that's, that's been one of the most powerful things about my job at Southern Living is to watch the light bulb come on with these kids where they, they make this connection between what's growing on this farm how to cook it at the stove, and then to sit down with their family at the tasting table and eat this meal that they cooked. Uh, it's a pretty cool thing with a Southern Living recipe. So Jones Valley's in there, and, and they're very much a part of, of who we are now and what we've been doing as a crew. And so then we just thought, okay, well, let's make this thing really personal. What are, what are the things we love right now? You know, we love Jones Valley. We love... Uh, Kamada st uh, style grills, you know, so they're going to be in our barbecue portion of this. Uh, we love Aaron Franklin as a pit master. We love Whole Hog Barbecue in Eastern North Carolina. We love this movement going on right now, this, this whole agricultural renaissance that's feeding the way that we cook. I think just, just like we, uh, we have to remind ourselves that we're storytellers and this, this is our duty as Southerners to tell good stories, you know, well, it's also our duty to grow good stuff. We've always done it, and we got away from it. So, you know, there's a big through line in the package about this agricultural renaissance, whether it's homesteaders or back to the landers, or, or uh, you or I growing a container garden in our backyard, or going to a farmer's market, you know. What do you think that represents? What, what, what is the bigger, the bigger idea, the bigger shift that is happening, you know, beyond just just you and Southern Living identifying this happening in the South. What, why is this happening? I think it comes down to good taste. And I think it comes down to food knowledge and people understanding uh, what good food is now. You know, I think we got away from it in the, uh, you know, in the age of convenience and, and a 10 ounce can of cream of mushroom soup. You know, and uh, you know it's the can that launched a million dishes, but that's not the tie that binds the southern food. You know, but I think for a long time that's what we got associated with. This is, I mean, I love a good casserole, but that's not the only thing that, that marks southern food. You know, so I think this whole uh, movement of and this proliferation of farmers markets and, and this rise of, of gardens and um, and edible produce. I, I think it speaks to people wanting something that tastes good, something that was raised correctly. And, you know, people want this authentic 
rootsy thing. And I think that the, the whole edible movement is, is a part of that. You know, and I think chefs have been a point of the spear of it. You know, they've done a great job of being these messengers of, of what tastes good and how you should properly cook something. And while we're not a, a magazine that uh, is a big chef magazine, you know, I, I credit them for, you know, even convincing the farmers to grow this stuff, you know. I mean, I think about it in the Triangle in Chapel Hill where I'm from, after, you know, the whole big t the tobacco fiasco, it was the chefs and the farmers who came in and said, you know what, we can grow a $3 head of organic lettuce and we're going to make some money. And there was an audience for it, there was a market for it, and if you look at, at the, uh, the rise of these organic farms and, and this whole local food movement, you know, it's just taken off. I'd be interested in hearing what your thoughts are. The local food movement, some would argue, probably did not even start in America, but in America, yeah. you know, we, we can certainly gaze over to the West and start looking Absolutely. in uh, Northern California. But um, is that, do you, do you think that the, the chefs who are in the South now, that, that that particular wave that began in, gosh, what was the 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. you know, has that wave finally made it to the South? Is Absolutely. There, what's, the, what's happening there? Well, it's really interesting. If, if you look back um, at the cookbooks written by Southerners that really, really matter, that still have a, a lasting legacy, you talk about Edna Lewis, you talk about Bill Neal. You know, these books had the same viewpoint as Alice Waters. You know, Alice Waters is credited with, with this whole movement and she should be, but the South was eating like this. It was eating like this and uh, it was documented and, and uh, people like Edna Lewis and, and uh, Bill Neal put pen to paper and, and showed it, but this whole movement that came out of Berkeley and that came out of Northern California, I think convinced the country that it was possible. At a time when, uh, you know, I mean, down South, People were eating at country clubs, you know. There weren't there weren't a whole lot of places to go out and eat. It was still about home cooking. Um, so you know, I think it's really taken hold in the South, and uh, it's not a new thing. It's just a new thing that uh, is looking backwards to an old thing. You know, we, it skipped a couple generations, and I think um, I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, I think it's only going to get bigger to the point we don't have to talk about local food anymore. It's just there, you know. Yeah, it better be local. It better be grown nearby. You know, I mean, forget the politics about it. Uh, if it's grown nearby, it's going to taste better because it's fresher. You know? Yeah, the fact that that standard is is now raised to that point. Yeah, that, that's yeah. A, that's a huge thing. You know, and it's not. Uh, it's still not a. I think it's still a, a small thing. You know, it, it, when you talk about food access and you talk about. Um, you know, kids being able to, to get healthy ingredients, it's, you know, there's this romantic notion that, oh, we should all be eating local, and we, it, it's, it's the way to be, um, well, the fact of the matter is, it's, it needs to build, it needs to continue to grow before this is a, a, a common thing for everybody. Um, because, the, you know, let's face it, this stuff's expensive. You know, that head of lettuce, or that, that bunch of radish, radishes is expensive. But I'm hoping that we get to a point where People demand that kind of flavor and that kind of taste, um, and that becomes such a, a, a common denominator that your basic supermarket produce is no longer good enough. You still got a ways to go.
but it's also interesting. I, I think about when I was cooking in Northern California, when Waxman opened a restaurant up there in a little hippie town called Sebastopol. You know, that whole local movement, I remember the San Francisco Chronicle documenting um, these locavores and, and these people that would only eat within a, uh, a certain square mile radius. This wasn't happening in New York yet, and that was 07. You know, I mean, people were going to the green markets in New York, but when I got back to New York uh, in 08, it had started to really take root there, you know, and, uh, and then it began to, to take root here too. So it's a, it's a, a good thing that's happening. What's inspiring you right now? I think the, what's inspiring me is, is just being out in the South and, you know, going to cities like Atlanta or Knoxville or Charleston or Nashville or Asheville, you know, Greenville, wherever it is, no matter how big the market is. I think the South is just, it's crackling with electricity right now. And I'm inspired by the fact that the South that I left in 04 is way different than the South that I came back to in, in 2012. You know, it's a much more dynamic place. Um, you know, and I mean, a lot of it's personal. I mean, I, I left when I was 24 and I came back when I was, you know, 34. So I'm different too. But everywhere you go, there's this energy of people making cool stuff. You know, and it's, they're, they're making cool jeans. They're cooking delicious food. They're designing great tables. You know, this the whole idea of this, of the Southern Maker is really exciting to me right now. Um, and there's this, this energy down here that, uh, that things are possible, you know, and, and that's exciting to me. Hunter, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Tanner, enjoyed it. I would like to thank Hunter Lewis from Southern Living. Remember to check out the June 2014 issue and follow the social conversation at hashtag SouthernFoodNow. The special music today is from Joel Madison Blunt. Hear more at joelmadisonblunt.com. As always, our theme music is by Chris Hoke and Brett Eastep. And to see pictures of Hunter and to hear more episodes of the show, click on over to AuthenticSouth.com. You can also hear us at WFAE.org, Public Radio Exchange, and on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Until we go south again, thanks for listening.